Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. And let me start then with simply a gospel reference here. You know that Francis of Assisi's whole life was built around the notion of the gospel as an absolute. So I'd like to start with a quotation from the Gospel of Matthew. The Lord is talking about the kingdom of heaven. You've heard it many times, a treasure buried in a field, a merchant searching for a pearl of fine price, a net thrown into the sea, that is filled with good and bad fish. And he poses a question to all of us about those metaphors. Do you understand what I'm talking about? And they say, of course, yes, but of course they don't. He concludes his address. Then every scribe who has been instructed in the kingdom of heaven is like the head of a household who brings forth from his storeroom both the new and the old. St. Augustine glosses this passage from Matthew 13 in the following way. Thus the old things are not taken away, but are hidden in a storeroom. The learned scribe is now in the kingdom of God, bringing forth from his or her storeroom not new things only, and not old things only. For if he should bring forth new things only, or old things only, he's not, or she is not, a learned scribe in the kingdom of God, presenting from their storeroom things new and old. If she says these things and does not do them, she or he brings them forth from his teaching office, not from the storeroom of his heart. So he's saying we should speak both things old and new from the storeroom of our heart. I think it's time for us as stewards of the kingdom of God to bring forth from the storeroom of our own hearts something very Franciscan that's very old, but today in our contemporary world, will come to people as something very new. Let me describe the Franciscan intellectual tradition briefly for those of you that are not familiar with it. First of all, it's a spirituality. It's a spirituality, a spiritual experience of God that Francis of Assisi and Claire of Assisi re was revealed to them they received a revelation about who God was and who they were before God. So it starts with a spiritual experience, something that moves the heart, something that comes from the storeroom of the heart, something that is an encounter, a dialogue, if you like, between ourselves and God. Every theology, which we're going to talk about, worthy of the name, is a spirituality seeking for words adequate to its expression. How do we talk about the movements of our heart? 
That's the Franciscan intellectual tradition, trying to put words and concepts and ways of communicating on the desires and affections of our heart based on this spiritual experience. This tradition generally refers not only to Francis and Claire, but to their disciples and those who followed them in the 13th century. There's many of them, but they learn to talk about life, about the world, about their experience in terms that reflected their spiritual experience. For example, we have one who wrote the legend of the saints, Thomas of Chilano. Many of you are probably familiar with his uh, life of St. Francis. That contains in it a lot of narrative and stories, theology and spirituality in the form of stories. I met with a teacher this afternoon who teaches the poetry of Jacoponi da Tode. Again, poetry expressing this spiritual experience. Academically, there's Alexander of Hales, or his pupil, St. Bonaventure, whom you've heard of. The Franciscans have the first person to reflect on the ethical meaning of a merchandising society, Peter John Olivi, or an educational reformer like Roger Bacon, or probably the most difficult but most subtle doctor of all, John Duns Scotus. So there's many ways to express the desires of our hearts. Popular narratives, poetry, painting, music, travelogues, descriptions of foreign cultures, visionary literature, scholastic treatises. In the last 15 years, there's been explosion of work in the English world on the Franciscan intellectual tradition using all of these different genres and expressing them. There's now a website of resources, franciscantradition.org. There's an association of Franciscan colleges and universities, which Steubenville belongs to. There's a plethora of publications at multiple levels, all of which have emerged in the last 15 years. Now, the tradition is so rich in all its forms I can't talk about music, I'm not a musician, or poetry, I might do a little poetry, I don't know. I uh, can talk about the scholastic treatises and traditions of which I'm, with which I'm comfortable. And tonight I'd like to concentrate a little bit on Bonaventure and John Duns Scotus, and maybe do it in a slightly different way. But try to explain some of the elements for you of the Franciscan intellectual tradition. First of all, I'd like to talk about the tradition as kind of an opening that's been given to us. It's given to you, a new generation of students, generation of faculty, administrators, institutions. Something has changed in the church culture that allows this tradition to emerge. Then I'd like to talk about the tradition in contemporary church teaching using the last uh, four papacies to talk about it and then conclude with contemporary challenge. So three different parts. The first part 
Let's talk a little bit about a cultural opening. Now, some of this may be arcane to many of you, uh, but it gets, sets a little historical context, and that's really what I want to do here. The church, there was a movement in the church called modernism at the turn of the 20th century, and it was condemned by the papacy. And after the condemnation in 1907, the presentation of our faith publicly in catechisms, in schools, in colleges and universities favored what a movement called neo-scholasticism. An instruction of the Pope Pius X urged theological centers and schools to base their curriculum on Thomas Aquinas, a very fine thinker, not a Franciscan. This preference for Thomas was enshrined in the Code of Canon Law so that our colleges and universities focused on the communication of what they call the angelic doctor's teaching. Not everybody agreed on what Thomas said. And a group of people who were very strong in the church designed what they called 24 theses. And those became the norm of kind of orthodoxy. The pressures of these standards in the 1920s and 1930s spawned in the church, much like today, a full-scale internal war between, on the one side, the proponents of a more intellectualized neo-scholasticism that depended on the 24 Thesis, and on the other side, pioneers in the history of medieval scholasticism represented by Dominican and Jesuit theologians and Franciscan followers of Bonaventure and Scotus. Even within Thomism, pluralism was frowned upon. And one prominent teacher of St. Thomas referred to as the saint himself being under, quote, house arrest. The real vibrancy of his thought was not able to emerge in this period. The theology associated with the monastic schools uh, pioneered by Jean Leclerc and the Benedictines, that also didn't have much public resonance in the church itself. And despite all the work of the Franciscan colleges and the Franciscan educational conference here in the United States, the Franciscan tradition in tone and major themes was in public eclipse. We know from our experience, and you know very well, that much of that changed with the Council and the 1960s. A pluralism of approaches in theology and social life began to emerge in the church. It lay just below the surface. It's kind of what I call a recessive gene, for those of you in biology. Not a dominant gene, but a recessive gene, but it's our gene. It belongs to us and it exploded into public speech after the council. Now, the long-term impact of all of these kinds of different ways of thinking, liberation, anthropology, sociology, the multiple forms of the interpretation of Thomas, the interpretation of the Franciscan school, the monastic school, all of those different kinds of approaches to thinking made it very difficult for Catholic education to establish 
a very strong public identity. Multiple forms of what it meant to be a Catholic university, we'll call them protocols or marks of identity, arose. Different schools made different choices, some better than others. Steubenville, for example, the university has a significant, important, and good history in this area with an evangelical and ecclesial emphasis. That's not the same tradition, let's say, as St. Francis or Cardinal Stritch or St. Bonaventure's. Very good, but they're very different. In the larger context, John Paul II with Excordia Ecclesiae was it began an attempt to bring some overall pattern into this tapestry of diversity and struggle for identity. From my point of view, it's probably safe to say that very few, if any, institutions built their new identity during this period after the Council on the Franciscan intellectual tradition. In the immediate post-conciliar period, to be honest, it was not well known, and the tools did not exist for its dissemination. If colleges claimed Franciscan tradition, it was usually equated with certain pastoral and ministerial values. We talked about it this afternoon. Compassion, public service, peace and justice, community reconciliation, most recently, environmental concerns. Over time, a set of symbols and stories went with this tradition. Francis and the leper, Francis embracing the sultan, the wolf of Gubbio, the canticle of creatures. All of those are great Franciscan values and themes. For most people, the recovery of the tradition meant the spirituality of Francis and Claire. And that's what inspires us. That's what we get excited about. And compassionate practice. Institutionally, in many of our colleges, the ministry department and service outreach programs carried the freight of our Franciscan religious identity. All of this is good. But within a university setting, known for rigorous academic reflection and scientific precision, this could appear as simply pastoral, a species of soft intellectualism, expressing itself in enthusiasm for community and outreach. The difficulty is that the roots of these Christian values in a particular faith stance, their framing of a very particular philosophy and theology, and their manifestation in the liberal arts, politics, economics, and attitude towards God's presence in the scientific and natural world remained elusive. As a general rule, Franciscan institutions have little knowledge of how to communicate their vision in the categories of collegiate learning. The blockage has arisen for many different reasons, which we need not go into. Yet the Franciscan intellectual tradition lives easily in all of these areas. But do we really know what it is? Can we give a reason for the hope that is within us? We can practice it 
and God knows here you're very good at practicing and performing, and you may be very good at the intellectual reflection on it. But what does it mean to have a socially embodied and intellectual convincing public argument about God and God's world? Many of you, when you graduate from college, will move into the world in different avenues, family life, business, social service, economics, hospital care. Can you give a reason for the hope that is within you, for the practice that you already perform? Very well. Can you communicate it in words to make an argument, a public argument, so that we can influence and impact or change the patterns of our society? Can we evangelize through word and preaching about what this is? So we have a cultural opening, given both the history and what's happened, it seems to me, and we have resources to do this. What might they be? The second part of the lecture, I'd like to talk about the Franciscan tradition in terms of how the modern papacy sees it, because this also is something very new and emergent in the teachings of the Pope. What we don't know about very well is that the opening provided by the council and the cultural changes which have occurred have also led to a resurgence of interest at the highest levels of the church in recovering the Franciscan intellectual tradition as particularly pertinent to the church's mission of evangelization. In fact, the succession of popes since the council have called attention to this important strand within the church of faith-seeking understanding and understanding informed by faith. Referring to these teachings of the modern papacy, let me identify a few of the general characteristics of the Franciscan intellectual tradition. I will identify, hopefully for us, eight of them. Right after the council in 1966, there was an academic congress held at Oxford and Edinburgh, Scotland, and they celebrated the seventh centenary of the birth of John Duns Scotus, one of the masters of Franciscan theology. He was considered the standard bearer of the Franciscan tradition, and Pope Paul VI published an apostolic letter related to his teaching called Alma Parins. The apostolic delegate of Great Britain read the, the exhortation of the Pope and then commented upon it. It's the way this works uh, in the church. Let me highlight several themes that come through in what they had to say. First of all, the first characteristic, the Franciscan intellectual tradition values the actual, the concrete, the individual. The apostolic delegate in his commentary on the Pope's exhortation calls special attention to the scientific positive and experiential cast of Franciscan thought, particularly as that emerged from the Oxford School and that Scotus inherited. 
by this focus on the singularity of the person, meaning God did not create human beings. God chose to create Susan or Mary or George or Joseph or Sean. God chooses to create individuals. The particularity of the person is holy to God. And by this focus on the singularity of the person, the cast of thought of Scotus critiques any general trend or abstraction that gives pride of place to the universal and relegates the individual to the domain of the accidental and perishable. Individuals come and go. The universal remains. Franciscan thought is just the opposite. Scotus takes his stand against all totalitarian systems and all ideologies. Today, we can see this theme evident within the tradition of what they called an experiential knowledge or an experimental knowledge, a knowledge that's inductive, that we learn from looking at nature, studying people, looking at concrete things, perceiving what's happening around us. We begin with the actual and the real. This causes a methodological attention to natural things and systems. Let's say optics or physics or the study of gravity in the universe. This is experiential, experimental knowledge. This gives pride of place, to some extent not the only place, to mathematics as a tool to comprehend the structure of the universe. Why is mathematics important? Because we can understand the relationship between things through numbers. But it's built up from the concrete. The exact meaning of terms, as in language, the importance of language for communicating to people, concepts, the role of temporality as conditioning all things. We are embedded in time and space, and that's how we're built. God built us to live in time and to grow in time. If you put it this way, God doesn't create an essence, and then from that essence, copy you into it. God creates you with human life and intends over time for you to grow and develop. So it's very developmental. It's very particular. It takes time seriously. You move from being a freshman to a senior. This is a turn towards the empirical, the analytic, the experiential, and the tentative dimension of all knowledge. A second characteristic is the Franciscan tradition concentrates on dialogue. Paul VI sees the Franciscan intellectual tradition as, quote, providing a golden framework for serious dialogue between the Catholic Church and the Anglican Communion, as well as other Christian churches. Scotus's combination of 
epistemological humility or I don't know everything, you can teach me something, calm judgment, concentration on fundamentals, what do we agree on, the gradual learning of truth through community and other people, critical method, and respect for obedience for the church's teaching authority. All of these together provide a solid base which circumscribes an overreaching intellectualism that tries to put everything together into one package or make one size fit all, or a fundamentalism which is rampant in our society. All of these and their social partners, quarrels and divisions are alien to the Franciscan intellectual tradition. The apostolic delegate will elaborate. By dialogue, we mean the establishing of friendly contacts between different groups with a view to some serene study and mutual knowledge brotherly and sisterly understanding and sincere respect. This attitude of dialogue extends to non-Christian believers as well as with those believers who are men and women of goodwill. I'll talk about the theological foundations for this dialogue a little later. The third characteristic. In the Franciscan tradition, we learn intellectually so that we can love more greatly. Knowledge is for love. The apostolic letter enunciates a basic principle of the Franciscan tradition. The purpose of the knowledge of the faith, theology, is practice. Practice is right action and the action that faith-based education produces is the transformation of the person into a truer image of God who is love in action. Paul VI notes that Scotus was, quote, a constructive theologian, and he loves with that real and definitive love, which is a practice, according to his own dictum. True love is a practical thing, you can see it, touch it, feel it, you know it, because it's embodied and it's acted and performed. The apostolic delegate argues, to fully appreciate Scotus's personality theory, we must understand his fundamental doctrine on the will, the primary faculty, and on the preeminence of love over knowledge. This focus on love leads to the centrality in this tradition of the rational will, not the arbitrary will, the rational will, the affections, and freedom for others. This is a counterpoise to any reduction of knowledge to instrumental reason, or to the delivery of knowledge in a mathematical model of education, as if we actually grasped everything and could put it together. It leads to transformation and action. To be true, our intellectual tradition must embody itself in human activities. Franciscan education 
needs to translate our deepest desires and affections into patterns of thinking. This feeling and thinking must then become public performances open to others to an infinite horizon of embodied beauty. Put another way, Franciscan learning issues concludes with participatory theater, a drama in which we're all involved and demonstrate for each other the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is love incarnate. The fourth element, the Franciscan tradition has political corollaries. The focus on love, the freedom of the will, and the uniqueness of the person establish clear pathways for educational method and goals directed to a humanistic civic end. The Apostolic Delegates points to the implication of the tradition for political thought. In Scotus's writings, he notes, we can trace the beginning of modern political and social science. Political authority in our tradition may belong both to a single person or to a community as a whole, a democracy or a monarchy, for example. But in either case, the legitimate sanction of authority is derived from the consent of the individuals who are governed. Scotus himself argues that because God's infinite self-diffusive goodness and blessedness, many varieties of the same species are created. That makes it difficult to negotiate, but we're always engaged in political negotiation from this perspective because authority emerges from the consent of those who are governed. This has implications, obviously, for how we lead. This focus on the infinite liberality of God, the bonding power of love, and the uniqueness of the person has enormous consequences for our engagement in the public sphere as citizens committed to participatory and political love in action. The fifth characteristic, the Franciscan tradition is a Christian humanism. Almost at the beginning of his apostolic letter, Paul VI called attention to the ability of Scotus's synthesis to respond to the black cloud of atheism which hangs darkly over our age. That's a citation from Paul VI. The pontiff pointed in particular Scotus's theodicy, his vision of God, built up from scriptural principles, namely, I am who I am from Exodus and God is love from 1 John. Scotus brings philosophical rigor to a consideration of the absolute centrality of the infinite love and freedom of God. And therefore, the human condition as truly contingent and free, but made to be for others. Those are the two poles. God infinitely chooses to love us into existence and continues to love us into existence. So the very fact of our current existence now and a moment from now is dependent on God's love. We have always this access to the presence of God's love willing us to be. And that's a faithful, indomitable love. 
It doesn't change. God has committed himself to our existence and its fruitfulness. SCOTUS's starting point, which stresses the Trinitarian God as dynamic goodness, translates the formula, God creates all things into the terms, God freely loves all things into existence. They're not necessary. We exist because God freely loves us into existence. In moving towards God, the person does not lose his or her individuality. We do not lose our liberty, our self-determination, or the spontaneity of our will. This synthesis makes God as love and communion not the enemy of human development, nor does it associate the name of God with vengeance or even with a duty of hatred and violence. Rather, God is love becomes the fulfillment of all human aspirations and the companion of all human suffering. If we are looking for a powerful public argument of Christian humanism to counteract the secular humanism of our age, we need look no further than this tradition. It represents a faith-based argument which both values and critiques modernity and postmodernity. Let's look briefly at John Paul II and Benedict XVI. Now this statement by Paul VI and the Apostolic Delegate in 1966 was the beginning of the revival of the Franciscan tradition as a public presentation of the faith for the whole church. But this has continued very strongly, <clears throat> excuse me, in the teaching of John Paul II and Benedict XVI. On July 6th, 1991, John Paul II recognized the centuries-old cult of Scotus. On March 23rd, 1993, he declared him blessed. John Paul referred several times to this Franciscan teacher as presenting a theological doctrine of some significance for today's world, describing him as the minstrel of the, <coughs> excuse me, the incarnation and defender of the Immaculate Conception. Benedict XVI followed this same line. He notes with approval the same elements in John Paul II that John Paul II noticed, including his vision of freedom and the recognition that any truly human action, will and reason are conjoined. Benedict presented for the first time a lengthy public catechesis on the Franciscan tradition in its scholastic, vernacular, and visionary expressions. He wrote on Bonaventure's view of history. His encyclical Spe Salve on Hope <clears throat> is almost a copy of articles he wrote on Bonaventure's theology of hope. All of this is important because the Paul that I mentioned earlier that had hung over Scotus's thought since a tyranny patris in 1879 and the ascendancy of Neotomism. All of this is important because it makes our own tradition 
and ourselves a viable way of approaching faith-seeking understanding that receives the official approval of the church. An ecclesial opening has occurred for the articulation of the Franciscan tradition as a faith-based argument in response to the challenges of modernity. I'll mention three more points very quickly. The sixth element. The Franciscan tradition emphasizes God's gifted condescension to us in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the foundation of creation. The two popes have found in the thought of Scotus and Bonaventure deep affinities with their own focus on the centrality and primacy of Christ. John Paul returns repeatedly in his writings to the foundational phrase for Christian humanism taken from Gaudium et Spes. For by his incarnation, he, the Son of God, in a certain way, united himself with each human being, every human being on this earth. By his incarnation, he, the Son of God, in a certain way, united himself. He worked with human hands. He thought with a human mind. He acted with a human will. And with a human heart, he loved. The human being, John Paul writes, is the way of the church. And this way passes through the whole mystery of Christ as man's divine model. When we follow Christ, we encounter every human being on this earth. And we recognize in every being on this earth the presence of Christ, hidden or visible. John Paul will expand on this, on the whole mystery of Christ, by placing the Lord's humanity at the foundation of creation. He writes, the church has confidence in the human being because she knows the evil of which he is capable and she knows that well, in spite of the heritage of sin and the sin which each one is capable of committing, there exist in the human person, in each of us, sufficient qualities and energies, a fundamental goodness, because we are the image of the creator placed under the redemptive influence of Christ, quote, who united himself in some fashion with every human being because the efficacious action of the Holy Spirit fills the earth. Benedict XVI also focuses on the humanity of Christ at the basis of creation. Creation is created through him, with him, and for him. He quotes, unlike many Christian thinkers of the time, Scotus held that the Son of God would have been made a human being even if humanity had not sinned. This somewhat surprising thought crystallized because in the opinion of Duns Scotus, the incarnation of the Son of God planned from all eternity by God the Father at the level of love is the fulfillment of creation and enables every creature in Christ and through Christ to be filled with grace and to praise and glorify God in eternity. 
Duns Scotus was aware that because of original sin, Christ redeemed us with his passion, death, and resurrection. Yet he still reaffirmed that the incarnation is the greatest and most beautiful work of the entire history of salvation, that it is not conditioned by any contingent fact, our sin, but is God's original idea of ultimately uniting with himself the whole of creation in the person and flesh of the Son. This places emphasis on God's irrevocable intentionality and desire to have co-lovers, us, at the foundation of Franciscan Christian humanism. Seventh characteristic. The Franciscan tradition places the gospel at the service of a universal sense of fraternity. The unity between creation and incarnation indicated in these papal statements are leaf motifs of the Franciscan intellectual tradition, opening up its Christian vision to embrace all people as brother and sister. In other words, the tradition, when we appropriate it, has ethical consequences for how we interpret the religious diversity in our contemporary world. Benedict XVI will write in his apostolic exhortation, Verbum Domini, quote, Scripture tells us that everything that exists does not exist by chance, but is willed by God and is part of God's plan, at whose center is the invitation to partake in Christ in the divine life. This tradition of Christian thought has developed this key element of the symphony of the word, as when, for example, St. Bonaventure sees all the possibilities of creation present in the word of God and states, quote, every creature, animate or inanimate, is a word of God, since every creature proclaims God. The university of Christ's word and image present in every creature is clearly illuminated even more by John Paul II's focus on the unity between Christ's presence and that of the Holy Spirit. To take one example, it was not accidental for the Franciscan tradition that Pope John Paul II chose Assisi for his universal day of prayer in 1986 and again in 2002. The city of Francis became the symbolic meeting point for the world's religions. And John Paul II interpreted this in his encyclical. I quote, excluding any mistaken interpretation, the interreligious meeting held in Assisi was meant to confirm my conviction that every authentic prayer is prompted by the Holy Spirit who is mysteriously present in every human heart. Our theological and philosophical tradition give voice to this conviction. The last characteristic I'll mention this evening, the Franciscan tradition envisions a political economy, that's the way we arrange our social life, our politics and our economics, he envisions a political economy whose fundamental faith experience places before us the astonishing experience of gift. Today, 
we refer to Francis's embrace of the leper as an act of solidarity. John Paul II mentions three elements of this. Every time we practice solidarity, we go beyond ourselves. We take on a specifically Christian notion of gratuity, forgiveness, reconciliation. And then our neighbor becomes not only a human being with his or her own rights and a fundamental equality with everyone else, but becomes a limit image of God the Father, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and placed under the permanent action of the Holy Spirit. Going beyond oneself, total gratuity, recognition of the image of God in each person, become three dimensions of a new political economy proposed by Benedict XVI in his encyclical Caritas in Veritate. Benedict goes on to, to compare this logic of gratuity, which is a free act, not solicited, with other types of social logic that govern our world, the logic of exchange, the most common logic, where we give money in order to get, to acquire. That's one type of logic. Another type of logic is the logic of duty. When we give, because if we don't, we'll be put in jail. Taxation. And the logic of gratuity directly confronts the dominant commercial logic of market consumption with its utilitarian view of life and the environment, its focus on efficiency and self-interest. We live, as one author put it, in a commodity civilization with its fables of abundance. But redemption, our creation and our redemption, is really a gratuitous affair. And when we're converted to Christ and live a life centered on God, we practice gratuity. Economic and political development, the Pope writes, if it is to be authentically human, needs to make room for the principle of gratuitousness. In our Franciscan lexicon, gratuity is translated by the code word poverty or generosity in action. Am I willing to become poor so that someone else can become richer. This is an economia franciscana. The Lord made himself poor for our sake so that we in turn might become rich. This is the biblical foundation from 2 Corinthians. In his image, our life begins beneath gratuity and goodness and is meant to be good and gratuitous. I've just given you eight elements. There's lots of others that we could go into. <clears throat> so let me conclude then with a contemporary challenge. I've tried to outline these eight dimensions with Paul VI, John Paul II, Benedict XVI. But they're really given also coherent expression in the encyclicals and exhortations of Pope Francis. We're struck not only by his practice, but also by his intellectual explanations in Evangelii Gaudium, the joy of the gospel, Laudato Si, creation our home, and Amoris Laetitia, the joy of love. 
the Pope was formed by the spiritual exercises of Ignatius Loyola. One of the most prominent interpreters of that argues very well and effectively that the whole first principle and foundation is based on the theology of John Duns Scotus. The Ignatian tradition emerges, at least in part, from our Franciscan convictions. And the contemplation to attain love that Ignatius emphasizes, recognizes seeing God in all things who gives us all things. This is very close to Bonaventure. The recovery of this tradition that I've talked about is already begun in many different venues. Yet it's also very fragile. And that's where we come today. The Washington Theological Union in Washington has closed. The Franciscan Study Center in Canterbury has closed. The year-long training program in Franciscan Studies at St. Bonaventure's has closed. There remain only the colleges and universities and you who carry the vision with a Franciscan heritage and the graduate program of my own school, the Franciscan School of Theology in Oceanside, that carries this tradition forward in any focused institutional way. As good as our efforts are, they're still very disparate, and the tradition continues to lack cohesion and a public voice. Many of the elements mentioned earlier in this presentation have occluded and blocked our message. Let me conclude with just two areas that build on what is happening. First, service learning integration, which you do very well. Our intellectual tradition is meant to inform the mind and move the heart so that it ends in practice. This practice is very evident in the missionary outreach here in peace, mercy, and ministries. Other Franciscan colleges, universities, and the Graduate School of Theology sponsor service learning work in care for creation, a year-long campus-wide reflection on the canticle of creatures, immersion experiences with the poor, alliances with the Franciscan Action Network, work in hospitals, work with the poor. But a challenge is embedded in this action. Does it move beyond the experience of a sociological event community that's here one day and gone the next? Voluntary embraced by a few? Does it move to an established institutional commitment built into strategies and purposes of an educational institution? The transformation of heart and mind through rigorous analysis experiential participation, and explicit connection between classroom teaching on the Franciscan tradition of Christology, poverty, and mission. Connecting classroom teaching with experiential service learning is central. How much is service learning pedagogy integrated with core curricular goals and objectives? How much are our best practices shared? A second area is curricular development, course integration, public mission. Although there are numerous English language resources in the Franciscan intellectual tradition now available for various disciplines, are they adequately known? 
and adopted in classroom reflection and requirements in any collective way. The Association of Franciscan Colleges and Universities lists many examples of individual teachers using Franciscan themes in art appreciation, business, core curricular courses, ethics, education, literature, poetry, psychology, mathematics, nursing, oral communication, theater, philosophy, multicultural studies, media, social work, science, and the environment. On the webpage of the Association of Franciscan Colleges and Universities, there's a slideshow of 178 numbers illustrating teaching the Franciscan intellectual tradition in your course. A major work on the tradition in moral reasoning, integrating spirituality, spirituality, philosophy, and theology, and political thought has been published. On the Horizon is a major work comparing the thought of Aquinas with that of Scotus. Overall practices, such as the focused dissemination of these sources, inclusion of the tradition in faculty evaluations, interdisciplinary sharing, hiring for Franciscan mission, assessment instruments for campus culture, symposia, public advocacy, media marketing, and intercollegiate communication on the tradition are all valuable tools that would push otherwise personal initiatives forward into some type of overall institutional visibility. Is it possible, for example, I'll use my own school as an example, is it possible to create an alliance for the sake of training people in this tradition of practice and thought between this university and the graduate Franciscan School of Theology? Do we make those kinds of networks? But we need a focused commitment to our shared Franciscan educational purpose. I quote the popes because I believe the church is calling us to a mission, and it's a timely mission. It's first time publicly emerging in the church, and it's calling us to emphasize our intellectual tradition as a response, cognitively and affectively, to the state of the world today. We cannot make that argument only relying on performance, although that's very good. It's very solid. This is not a critique of performance. Many of us carry it on that level. We need also to make that public argument in our civil society, in our economics, in our politics, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our community gatherings. We need to be able to stand up and say, this is why I do what I do. This is what I believe. And this is an important value for the world today. Let me conclude then with where I began, a gospel witness. How does reform occur? Well, the great medievalist talks about longings at the base, that's you and I, men and women who are the subjects and agents of history, and we are that. Resistance, research, and the elaboration of doctrine, the appearance of islands of immobility, 
It's always going to be difficult. Finally, Jean Leclerc writes, life will win. This schema, the life of the Franciscan intellectual tradition, is actively responding to the longings of people who are the agents of history. A cultural opening, an ecclesial opening has been created. The intellectual insights are being articulated in numerous quarters. It's true. There are resistance within me and within all of us, and islands of resistance and immobility in our institutions, religious, educational, and civic. They're certainly there. And they're there to purify our thinking and give courage to our hearts. Yet, in the end, life will win. And our message is about life. It's a Christian humanism based on the love of God and the love of Jesus Christ, and it embraces the globe. Our mission as an educational institution is to send forth faithful disciples of Christ, transformed by the gospel, and able to give a public reason for the hope that is within them. In the end, this Franciscan vision of life speaks volumes about our civic engagement, our social transformation, our public discourse, our dynamic ecclesial commitment. We are called by the church to perform in word and deed what Bonaventure says is the end of our educational endeavor. And I close with this quote. This is the fruit of all sciences, that in all faith may be strengthened, God may be honored, character may be formed, and consolation may be derived from the union of the spouse with his beloved, a union which takes place through charity, a charity without which all knowledge is vain, because no one comes to the Son except through the Holy Ghost, who teaches us all truth, the one who is blessed forever and ever. Amen. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.